When any nation spends 70 years in captivity, in exile, one of the things you can safely conclude, conclude is that they will be hurting. The defeat and the agony of it, the suffering and the pain of it, will live beyond the official end of their captivity and their exile. Another thing you can safely conclude is that that people will be looking for leadership. They will wonder who will lead us, who will care for us, who will help us reverse the last 70 years of oppression and by God's grace lead us into what we pray is an unending season of prosperity. Defeated and oppressed people long for leaders who will truly represent them. And that's what we have in the case of Israel coming out of exile for those 70 years. God has sent them prophets like Haggai and Zechariah to encourage them, to strengthen them, to speak to their leaders like Joshua, the high priest, and, and others in order that they might be motivated, strengthened, prepared to carry on the work that God has for them. And yet, God also needs to teach them about leadership itself, the nature of it, where to find it ultimately, and how to evaluate it. When we come to Zechariah chapters 10 and 11 this morning, we are focusing in one real sense on this notion of leadership, on this notion of, of, of rulership. And if we want to put this in one main point, we might put it this way. Of all the shepherds, Herding sheep can have the best possible shepherd is God Himself. Of all the shepherds that herding sheep can have, the very best possible shepherd is God Himself. And what we're going to see when we read through Zechariah 10 and 11 is you're going to see this parade of leaders beginning with God, followed by Zechariah as a kind of pattern for leadership, human leadership among God's people, followed thirdly by an ungodly or unfaithful shepherd. And in sort of laying out these three scenes where we see these three potential shepherd rulers, God is inviting us to evaluate what's best for us when it comes to leadership, what we should seek, what we should pray for, what we should enjoy, and how we should respond. Zechariah chapters 10 and 11, we're going to see in, verse, in chapter 10, verse 1, all the way down to chapter 11, verse 3, we're going to see God shepherding the people. And we're going to notice some things that happen when God shepherds. Verses 4 to 14 of chapter 11, we're going to see when a good man shepherds God's people. We're going to see what results from a, a godly human leader leading God's people. And then in verses 15 to 17 of Zechariah 11, we'll see what happens when a bad man shepherds God's people. Zechariah 10, beginning in verse 1. Does everybody have a Bible? Anybody need a Bible? Okay, amen. Zechariah 10, beginning in verse 1. Ask rain from the Lord in the season of the spring rain. From the Lord who makes the storm clouds. And he will give them showers of rain 
to everyone the vegetation in the field. For the household gods utter nonsense, and the diviners see lies. They tell false dreams and give empty consolation. Therefore, the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. My anger is hot against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders. For the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like his majestic steed in battle. From him shall come the cornerstone, from him the tent peg, from him the battle bow, from him every ruler, all of them together. They shall be like mighty men in battle, trampling the foe in the mud of the streets. They shall fight because the Lord is with them, and they shall put to shame the riders on horses. I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have compassion on them, and they shall be as though I had not rejected them. For I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. Then Ephraim shall become like a mighty warrior, and their hearts shall be glad as with wine. Their children shall see it and be glad. Their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. I will whistle for them and gather them in, for I have redeemed them, and they shall be as many as they were before. Though I scattered them among the nations, yet in far countries they shall remember me, and with their children they shall live and return. I will bring them home from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria. And I will bring them to the land of Gilead and to Lebanon, till there is no room for them. He shall pass through the sea of troubles and strike down the waves of the sea, and all the depths of the Nile shall be dried up. The pride of Assyria shall be laid low, and the scepter of Egypt shall depart. I will make them strong in the Lord, and they shall walk in his name, declares the Lord. Open your doors, O Lebanon, that the fire may devour your cedars. Wail, O Cyprus, for the cedar has fallen, for the glorious trees are ruined. Wail, oaks of Bashan, for the thick forest has been failed. The sound of the wail of the shepherds, for their glory is ruined. The sound of the roar of the lions, for the thicket of the Jordan is ruined. Thus said the Lord my God, become shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter. Those who buy them slaughter them and go unpunished. And those who sell them say, blessed be the Lord, I have become rich. And their own shepherds have no pity on them. For I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of this land, declares the Lord. Behold, I will cause each of them to fall into the hand of his neighbor and each into the hand of his king, and they shall crush the land, and I will deliver none from their hand. So I became the shepherd of the flock, doomed to be slaughtered by the sheep traders. And I took two staffs. One I named Favor, the other I named Union. And I tended the sheep. In one month I destroyed the three shepherds. But I became impatient with them, and they also detested me. So I said, I will not be your shepherd. What is to die, let it die. What is to be destroyed, let it be destroyed. And let those who are left devour the flesh of one another. And I took my staff, favor, and I broke it, annulling the covenant that I had made with all the peoples. So it was annulled on that day. And the sheep traders who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. Then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages. But if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. 
Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Then I broke my second staff, Union, annulling the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. And the Lord said to me, take, take once more the equipment of a foolish shepherd. For behold, I am raising up in the land a shepherd who does not care for those being destroyed or seek the young or heal the maimed or nourish the healthy, but devours the flesh of the fat ones, tearing off even their hoofs. Woe to my worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. Let his arm be wholly withered, his right eye utterly blinded. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word and what you endeavor to teach us this day. Give us ears to hear, O Lord. And by the eyes of faith, let us behold your beauty in this word. Instruct us in every good thing we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Today, when Christians refer to shepherds, our minds go most quickly to pastors, to leaders in local churches. In the New Testament, the shepherd image is applied in exactly that way. But in the Old Testament and in the ancient world, shepherds refer most often to kings instead of religious leaders. The kings of Israel were expected to shepherd the people of God. Even in the sort of non-biblical literature, like the Code of Hammurabi, Hammurabi describes himself as a shepherd. That imagery was associated with government, with civil rulers, with, um, with the power of, of office. So when we come to Zechariah 10 and 11, we better understand the passage if we realize that in view first are government rulers and government leaders. There is a good secondary application to religious leaders, but here in view first are the kings with which Israel had to deal. And so the prophecy of these two chapters focus us on, on leadership in that realm primarily. The section opens with a description of what it's like to live under God's shepherding rule. We see four things here. When God shepherds, he blesses. See that there in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 10? Ask rain from the Lord in the season of the spring rain, from the Lord who makes the storm clouds, and he will give them showers of rain to everyone, the vegetation in the field. But now verse 1 is in contrast to verse 2. Now notice what happens in verse 2. For the household gods, he's focusing now on idols, not the true God. The household gods utter nonsense. And the diviners see lies. They tell false dreams and give empty consolation. Therefore, the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. You see the contrast between the true God in verse 1 and the idols of verse 2. The true God hears prayers, asks rain from the Lord. Idols utter nonsense. The true God can be approached directly, asks from the Lord. Idols have these diviners and these dream tellers that are the intermediaries between the false God and the, and the people. The true God blesses people. Notice there, he will give them showers of rain. Notice what idols give. 
They give false hope and false comfort. You see it there? They tell false dreams and give empty consolation. Beloved, when God is your shepherd, you have what you need and what you ask because he blesses his people. False gods make lousy shepherds. False gods and false prophets, notice there, they lead to lost people. See the end of verse 2? Therefore, the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd because the people had human rulers or gods made up in their own image as their shepherds. They, they wandered around lost and were afflicted. They suffered. They experienced pain. They were, they were mistreated. What the text seems to be getting at is this. We can make idols of human rulers. We can make gods of things that are not gods whether they are the household gods here in ancient Egypt, handmade totems, so to speak, or where they are rulers who usurp the place of God or whom we give the place of God in our thinking. Our politicians and elected officials can become our household gods. God knows almost all of them <laughs> utter nonsense and give empty consolation. We call it campaigning. And it's going after human rulers as gods that the people end up lost and abused. As a powerful illustration of this, you can see it in many places in the Bible, but the one that comes to mind to me so clear is 1 Samuel chapter 8. We you have time later this afternoon, perhaps, go back and read that chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 8. The, the chapter goes like this. Israel comes to the prophet uh, Samuel, and they say, look here, man, you're you getting old and about to die. They literally say that. And your sons, man, your sons, man, they ratchet. You know, anytime you mess with your son. So I tell you what, give us rulers like all the other nations. We want a king. We see all the other nations have a king. We want a king too. Samuel say, look, man, don't, don't do this thing. This ain't right. It displeased Samuel. But they pressed. And then the Lord spoke to Samuel around verse 7 or verse 8. And the Lord said, uh, look, it's not you they reject. I was their king. It's me they reject. Give them what they want. And the text basically says, I'm paraphrasing, they will get what they want, but they won't want what they get. The king will send their sons to war. The king will turn their sons into servants. The king will tell the, turn their daughters into servants. He will tax their crops. He will tax their wealth. He will live off the back of the people. And rather than know blessing because they wanted this human king, they are going to know oppression. It's a dramatic picture of the difference between having God as your king who blesses and having some other leader as your king who usurps. Second thing we know about God is that when God shepherds, he not only blesses, he strengthens. That's what we see in verses 3 to 6. Think about the images of strength used in that section. At the end of verse 3, the Lord says he will make them like his majestic steed in battle. You got to be careful what movies you watch when you read the Bible. I, I couldn't help but think of a donkey in Shrek. So I'm a steed, I'm a steed, you know. <laughs> Make them like his majestic steed in battle. Verse 4 gives us several metaphors for strength and power. See, they have the cornerstone, which holds up the entire building. The tent peg, which anchors the tent and keeps it from failing, falling. The battle bow, which pierces an enemy even from a, from a great distance. Verse 5 pictures Israel as mighty men in battle, trampling the foe in the mud of the streets. And there again we see why, don't we? 
They shall fight because the Lord is with them. Their victory over armies on horseback comes from the presence and power of God fighting their battle. He will strengthen them, not because they are strong, but because he is with them. He will be their strength. All of these rulers who, who, who led to victory, notice here that, that God talks about in 3 to 6. In verse 4, they come from Judah. Eventually, that's the tribe from which the Lord himself descends. So this section, even in the use of cornerstone, and those titles, it, it hints at the coming of the Messiah. But the point is very clear. When God shepherds, he strengthens. There's the third thing about God shepherding. When God shepherds, he gathers. He gathers. That's what we see in verses 6 to 12. The bulk of this chapter is focusing on the gathering of the Israelites from exile and slavery back into the land of promise. This is one way God makes, makes them strong. Verse 6, I will strengthen the house of Judah and I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have compassion on them and they shall be as though I had not rejected them for I am the Lord their God and I will answer them. Love the image of verse 8. I will whistle for them and gather them in. So gathering the flock of his people from the corners of the earth is as easy for God as whistling. And here's why. It says, therefore, I have redeemed them, and they shall be as many as they were before. Did you catch that? Verse 6. And they shall be as though I had not rejected them. Verse 8. And they shall be as many as they were before. When God gathers the sheep, he restores them to greater number than ever. The Lord does not simply collect them. The Lord doubles them. He multiplies them. He, he grows them. He, he replenishes them. Uh, and he makes them greater in number than ever. That's why verse 10 says, I will bring them home from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria. And I will bring them to the land of Gilead and to Lebanon. Notice, till there is no room for them. That's so beautiful. A people broken, defeated, scattered, and dispersed, maybe wondering if they would ever be a people again. God says, when I whistle and call you home, it will be like you were never scattered among the nations, and your number will be greater than ever, and you will have a crowding problem. There will hardly be any room for all those I bring to myself. When God shepherds, he blesses, he strengthens, he gathers. And when God gathers, he multiplies to the full. And the main reaction of God's people to this is joy. See there in verse 7? I imagine joy fills the hearts of parents and children. Also in verse 9 as they are coming back to the Lord. And how about verse 12 of chapter 10? I will make them strong in the Lord, and they shall walk in his name. Those who walk in the name of God are certainly filled with the joy of the Lord. It's nothing like being brought back home when God is your home. So people rejoice in this gathering. But notice a, a fourth thing about God's shepherding. When God shepherds, he punishes bad rulers. He punishes bad rulers. Notice the absence of a faithful shepherd or the presence of an unfaithful shepherd angers God. You see that in Zechariah 10, verse 3? My anger is hot against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders. 
Beloved, God gets hot. He gets in his holy fields, if you will. We're told why God gets angry over unfaithful leadership. Look there. For the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah. This is God's heart toward his people, even when they are dispersed, even when they are defeated, even when they are apart from their home and apart from each other. The Lord cares for his people, and their mistreatment angers him. Based on this text, there are two things we should never think, beloved. Two things we should never think. Number one, never think that because God's people have to suffer under unrighteous rulers and leaders, that God does not care for them. The Lord cares very much, and, and he sees, and it's the Lord's care that provokes him and stimulates him to a holy anger. Here's the second thing. Never think the leaders get away with it. God says, I will punish the leaders. You can take that to the bank. Write that down. Look at verse 11. He shall pass through the sea of troubles and strike down the waves of the sea, and all the depths of the Nile shall be dried up. The pride of Assyria shall be laid low, and the scepter of Egypt shall depart. The greatest nations in the world at that time will be laid low when God punishes the leaders and the nations for their unjust rule. These are the ancient superpowers, Assyria and Egypt, kingdoms so vast that they thought they would never be toppled. This is, this is ancient day America and Russia. Forget what you hear in the news. Now, when God decides he's going to lay a kingdom low, he lays it low. It will be a grievous judgment. That's why Zechariah 11 verses 1 to 3 calls Lebanon and Bashan to wail. Those were cities, those were regions that were known for their cedars, known for their trees, and they supplied cedars for the building of the temple. They supplied cedars and wood for, for the surrounding world, and, and they were known for it, and, and by it they gathered riches. Now notice verse 3, the sound of the wail of the shepherds, for their glory is ruined. The sound of the roar of the lions, for the thicket of the Jordan is ruined. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth because when the Lord shepherds, he judges the unrighteous rulers. And this is instructive for us, isn't it? I mean, we may tell ourselves or, or hear others say, we're not looking for a pastor-in-chief, but a commander-in-chief. Or to ask ourselves if that's what God's looking for. God here assumes that leaders will be shepherds. Even the ancient pagan kings of the world. He called rulers to care for the people that they are entrusted with. And when rulers were not shepherds at heart, it was disastrous for the people. And so God himself is the very best shepherd. When he shepherds, he blesses, he strengthens, he gathers, and he punishes the wicked ruler. The text continues to move. And we get into a comparison. So we're at a second point now in verses 4 to 14. We live in a world where men and women must lead. Authority and leadership are woven into the fabric of human society. Without leadership, anarchy reigns. And despite the activities of groups like Occupy Wall Street, nobody experiences anarchy as a blessing. And it's interesting that those groups committed to anarchy soon don't exist. 
It's the last time you heard of an Occupy protest. We all crave good leadership. We all crave the safety and the security that comes from faithful leadership. And from time to time, God gives people faithful leaders. God calls people to serve as his under-shepherds. The normal way God shepherds his people is through the leaders that he appoints. That's, that's what happens with Zechariah beginning in verse 4. Zechariah now is a kind of allegory for godly leadership given to the people. God gives a good man to shepherd the sheep. And notice now the four qualities or the four things we see when a good man shepherds. When a good man shepherds, notice first of all, he often enters a hard situation. That's what we see in verses 4 to 6. Look there with me. Thus said the Lord my God, become shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter. Those who buy them slaughter them and go unpunished. And those who sell them say, blessed be the Lord, I have become rich. And their own shepherds have no pity on them. For I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of this land, declares the Lord. Behold, I will cause each of them to fall into the hands of his neighbor and each into the hands of his king, and they shall crush the land, and I will deliver none from their hand. I mean, how many of you want to apply to be the pastor of the church of the, the sheep doomed to slaughter? How <laughs> I many of you want to sort of move into that situation where God's people are known for their brokenness and the abuse they suffer and the rejection and the dejection that, that's characteristic of them. They are a people doomed to slaughter, verse 4. Verse 5 tells us that the people were being bought and sold like property. The ones who bought them, notice, slaughtered them. Not only that, the oppressors, verse 5, go unpunished. And the people who make money off the slave trade say, God is blessing us. The leaders of the people have no pity on them. Justice has broken down just as we saw back in Zechariah 7, verses 8 to 12. The sheep are oppressed and no one looks out for them. And God calls Zechariah to go into that situation. Beloved, if you're going to lead in any capacity, particularly as a Christian, you're going to have to face mountainous challenges. You're going to have to lead sometimes on behalf of the slaughtered and the sold out and the sold. You're going to have to enter lonely and difficult spaces. Almost never, almost never is society biased in favor of slaughtered sheep. Almost always society turns against the weak and the vulnerable. A few people have the courage and integrity to say, send me to shepherd those doomed to be slaughtered. Only good men and women do that. Only good men and women enter these situations where there's so little reward and so much pain. God sends Zechariah to do just that. And when a good man shepherds, he often has to enter into a hard situation. But notice something. When a good man shepherds, he can sometimes do good work. He can sometimes get some good things done. That's what we see in verses 7 and 8. Notice what Zechariah says. So I became the shepherd of the flock, doomed to be slaughtered by the sheep traders. And I took two staffs, one I named Favor, the other I named Union, and I tended the sheep. In one month, I destroyed the three shepherds. In one month, I destroyed the three shepherds. 
Truly transformative leadership does not settle for things as they are. A, a principled leader will not simply cope with the hard situations. That leader will work to change the situation. Think of the long fight of a William Wilberforce against the slave trade. Alone, for the most part, for decades. And by the sheer force of vision and morality and character and faith, he leaned into that difficult situation until England abolished the slave trade. That's the kind of leadership that God calls Zechariah to display. So Zechariah went to work, and by God's grace, that prophet was able to do a little something as a, as a ruler in Israel. Notice again, verses 7 and 8. So I became the shepherd of the flock, doomed to be slaughtered by the sheep traders. In other words, Zechariah, he embraced the mantle of leadership. He accepted the call. He, he took the job. And notice he says, I took two staffs, one I named Favor, the other I named Union, and I tended the sheep. We'll talk about those staffs again in a moment. But then the sort of result, he says, in one month, I destroyed the three shepherds. The commentators don't quite know who these three shepherds are. There are about 40 different uh, answers to who these shepherds are. So I'm led to believe that it's not necessary to the point of the text. <laughs> I don't know who they are either. What is clear is Zechariah says, I destroyed them, I deposed them, I removed them from leadership, and I did it in about 30 days. In American politics, we talk about the first 100 days of a presidency being really important. Zechariah said, man, I don't need 100 days. I had a month. Give me a solid month with these rascals, right? One conversator says, these words are probably the most enigmatic in the whole Old Testament. Again, in terms of who these kings are, these shepherds, we don't know. But we do see what God's leader is called to do, to speak truth to power, to oppose unrighteousness, to stand in for the vulnerable, to come against the unrighteous. When good people rule, it's possible to remove bad leaders and bring reform. But isn't it true, beloved, that we need more people like Zechariah represents here to say, Lord, I accept your call? In fact, we need more mature, saintly Christians to consider public service on behalf of the slaughtered sheep. We, we need Christians to consider public service in order to defend the unborn. We need Christians to consider public service to, in order to defend uh, those who are trafficked in, in sex slavery. We need people, Christians, to consider public service and a call to elected office as a vocation in order to defend those who are trapped in abusive situations, whether it's domestic violence or, or whether it's child abuse or, or whatever is the circumstance. Who will speak for the voiceless if we do not? Who will stand for what's right in the face of power if God's people won't? We need more who, like Zechariah, are godly and consider this call to public service. Maybe that's you. Perhaps the Lord would have you choose civil service or elected office as a vocation. Perhaps the Lord would use you to protect the vulnerable. Because when a good man shepherds, he can get some good things done by God's grace. Notice the third thing. When a good man shepherds, he might also face opposition might also face opposition. Now, those of us who think about leadership should not be surprised to find that even the best leaders sometimes face resistance. 
The most loving leaders can have their work frustrated and hindered even by those they come to serve. We don't have to look any further than Jesus than to see that. And that's what we have in verses 8 and 9. See there's the second part of verse 8? He says, now, I, I, I destroyed these leaders in 30 days, but notice now, but I became impatient with them, and they also detested me. So I said, I will not be your shepherd. What is to die, let it die. What is to be destroyed, let it be destroyed. And let those who are left devour the flesh of one another. What a powerful couple of lines. Zechariah now is there leading the people, shepherding the people, defending the vulnerable by getting rid of the unjust ruler. And the people detest Zechariah. Here's the thing about slavery. It gets in you. You're not, just, you're not freed from slavery just because you're no longer a slave. There's such a thing as a psychological slavery. There's such a thing as oppression doing a number on you so much so that, that you, you sort of identify with the oppressor against your own self-interest. And here he is coming. He's broken the back of these three kings, these three shepherds, and the people are angry with him. They detest him. They hate him. They resist him. Not everybody likes reformation. Not everybody likes change. And notice what happens in his heart. He says, I became impatient. They exhausted his ability to, to wait and to endure and to be patient with them. And in that, in that context, Zechariah says, you know what? I will not be your shepherd. Here's my two-week notice. What is to die? Let it die. What is to be destroyed? Let it be destroyed. And let those who are left devour the flesh of one another. The removal of a faithful shepherd is a serious judgment on unfaithful people. The removal of one who would lay down their lives to care for the sheep, only to be bitten by the sheep and harassed by the sheep, is in fact a judgment on those sheep. What might have been given life is left to die. What, what might have been saved from destruction is left to be destroyed. And the remnant of such sheep, those who are left over, they fall to a kind of social cannibalism, devouring each other. And when a good man shepherds, he will face opposition. Number four, when a good man shepherds, he may even have to resign. He may even have to resign. You see that there in verses 10 to 14? Again, they feature Zechariah giving his notice. Actually, he quits on the spot. Remember those two staffs, favor and union? Those two staffs symbolize Zechariah's covenant with the slaughtered sheep, a promise to care for them and to lead them. Now that covenant is broken, first, verse 10, Zechariah breaks favor. He breaks grace or graciousness with the people. Grace has come to an end. And insofar as Zechariah is God's under-shepherd, it's symbolic of God himself removing grace from his people. Notice that in verse 11. The sheep traders who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. It's like they've been waiting around for another chance to trade in the sheep. And, and they know that this is God's judgment. 
Then verse 14, Zechariah breaks the staff called union. That symbolized the breaking of the relationship between Judah and Israel, the northern and southern kingdoms. Once again, these brothers, this brotherhood is torn apart in civil conflict. Good leaders unite. The removal of good leadership divides. But in between the breaking of these two staffs, did you notice there? Zechariah requested his severance pay. Verses 12 and 13, they agreed to weigh out to Zechariah 30 pieces of silver. That was the value in Exodus 21, 32 of a slave's life. The Lord instructed Zechariah to, to take that, that money and to throw it, the silver, to the potter. God's chosen ruler gets sold out for 30 pieces of silver. It's at this point that we clearly recognize that Zechariah's prophecy is pointing forward ultimately to God's true chosen shepherd, Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 26, verses 14 to 16, has this prophecy in mind when it tells us that Judas betrayed Jesus for this exact sum of money, for 30 pieces of silver. And when Judas realized what he had done before he killed himself, you remember what he tried to do? He tried to go back to the temple to return the money. They refused to take the money. They said, this is blood money. And what does Judas do? He throws it into the potter's field. Or he goes into the potter's field where he, where he takes his life. Matthew 27, verses 3 to 10. The Lord Jesus Christ came as the great shepherd. He said so in John 10. And as shepherd, he came to bless the sheep, to strengthen the sheep, to gather his sheep. But so many are not worthy. They detest and hate the Lord. They do not want his rule in their lives. They want their household gods, and they, they want the leadership of men. In rejecting Jesus, they break favor with God and break the potential of union with God. It's as if they snap the staff of God's grace and relationship over their own knees in unbelief and hardened heart. So men betrayed Jesus, the chief shepherd. And here's the amazing thing. God is so good, he will use our betrayal as the means for our salvation. He will take the very betrayal of the Son of God, the very breaking of covenant with him, by the rejection of Christ. And he will take that betrayal and make it the means for our atonement, for our forgiveness, so that as a consequence of the betrayal, Christ is crucified on the cross. He's rejected as king. He's rejected as Lord. He's rejected as shepherd. They mock him and they, and they spit upon him and he dies on the cross. And in that rejection and in that death, God says, I am also satisfying my wrath upon my son. So that even those who rejected him for some season of life, even those who turned from him and despised him, just as they hated Zechariah, I will save them and rescue them by the shedding of his blood. Christ died in the place of sinners, at the hand of sinners, in order to save sinners. And three days later, he was raised from the grave, proving that God had accepted his sacrifice and opening a way of, of reconciliation with God. It's as if in his resurrection, he was putting back together the staff of union and the staff of favor. And it's by that shepherd's crook that he began to gather people from all nations and to bring them home to God. 
And he's still doing that. He's still reaching into the world with the hook of that shepherd's crook and grabbing people lovingly by the waist and drawing them to himself and drawing them home to God. He does that by repentance and faith. Maybe he's calling you this morning. He's calling you to see that you are one of those sheep doomed for slaughter apart from this shepherd, from this king. And he's calling you to, to come home. He's whistling for you in the gospel. He's making known to you that, that he is assembling his family in his kingdom and, and you ought to be a part of it. Maybe you feel that, that shepherd's hook pulling on you. Don't resist it. Don't harden your heart. Don't despise the gentle tuggings of a loving Savior. Come to him. Turn from sin. Trust in Christ. And you will be forgiven. And you will be loved. And you will be blessed. And you will be shepherded by none less than God himself. Come home. Come to Jesus. Believe in him. And be saved. The best shepherds who are men are men at best. If God shepherds you, you will know rest and blessing, joy and salvation. Come to him. Come to him. Because there's only one other option. If we don't have God as our shepherd and if we will not listen to faithful men who call us to God as our shepherd, then all that's left is bad shepherds. That's what we see in verses 15 to 17. When the Lord removes a godly leader from the people, what happens? Well, there's a vacuum. And the people most often get what they sins deserve, an ungodly leader. That's what happens in verses 15 and 17. Again, let me, let me read those for you. Zechariah 11. And the Lord said to me, take once more the equipment of a foolish shepherd. For behold, I am raising up in the land a shepherd who does not care for those being destroyed or seek the young or heal the maimed or nourish the healthy, but devours the flesh of the fat ones, tearing off even their hoofs. Woe to my worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. Let his arm be wholly withered, his right eye utterly blinded. And just as we did with God as a shepherd and a good man as a shepherd, let's see what happens when a, when a bad man shepherds, when, a, when you have a bad shepherd. When a, when a bad man shepherds, number one, it's God's judgment on the unfaithful. It's God's judgment on the unfaithful. Notice in verse 16, it's the Lord who raises up this shepherd. He didn't exalt himself. He didn't just seize the opportunity. It was just sort of opportunism gone awry. No, God's sovereign hand is involved in this. This ruler didn't come by happenstance. This ruler didn't emerge out of nowhere or out of nothing. God placed him there. God was sovereign in sending Zechariah to be his under-shepherd, and God is sovereign in raising up this foolish shepherd as a judgment. Beloved, no matter what's going on, our God is in control. Beloved, his control is never in doubt. We must not think that because a bad ruler came to power, God somehow slipped off the throne or wasn't looking. That's not the case. God is sovereignly orchestrating and superintending these things. The question is not whether God was in control, but what is God trying to tell his people? What we must focus on is what he's doing 
to tell us something. Is the Lord blessing his people with a faithful ruler or punishing his people with a foolish one? Should we rejoice and be glad or should we weep and mourn in repentance? Uh, uh, An unfaithful shepherd is just as calamitous as the Tower of Siloam in Luke 13. Or that wicked king killing people and mixing their blood with the sacrifices, profaning the sacrifice. You remember when the disciples come to Jesus and say, hey, you know, this tower fell on these people, killed these 13 people, and who sinned? What's going on there? Jesus says, listen, unless you repent, then likewise. The, the, the sort of raising up of a wicked leader should have that same kind of megaphone effect to God's people, to all who love righteousness. We look at that and go, God, you don't, you don't say, God, did you slip? Were you not looking? What, what, what happened? We look at that and we hear the Lord in a megaphone saying, repent. Repent. Plead with me for the blessing of righteous leadership. And when a bad man comes to shepherd God's people as a king and a ruler, that's a judgment. Notice number two, when a bad man shepherds, he will not care about the people being destroyed. That's the striking thing about verse 16. Notice what the text says there. For behold, I'm raising up in the land a shepherd who does not care for those being destroyed. That's a horrible sentence. And an even more horrible reality. And one thing that is essential to good leadership is love. It's care. The difference between a leader and a tyrant is this quality of caring for those that you lead. The absence of love makes a person in authority cruel. But the presence of love makes a person in authority sympathetic and kind. You see the heart of this man. He's not a, he's not a shepherd. He's a wolf. You know how you can tell the difference between a shepherd and a wolf, don't you? It's by what they eat. Wolves eat the sheep. Shepherds tend the sheep. Now here, this, this carnivorous, ravenous, cannibalistic leader, he doesn't care that people are being destroyed on his watch. This is what happens when a bad leader becomes a shepherd of people. Number three, What's the result of this not caring? Well, when a bad shepherd, when a bad man shepherds, he will scatter and devour the people. Notice there again in verse 16, he does not seek the young or heal the maimed or nourish the healthy, but devours the flesh of the fat ones, tearing off even their hoofs. You see that the, the weak get preyed upon, that's, that's the young and the maimed, but so also do the healthy. You know, he's not even sort of Darwinian about it, right? He's not even like, you know, survival of the fittest. He doesn't even sort of come to this task sort of like, well, you know what, let the weak die off because they're the weak links in the chain and and I'll care for the strong and we'll get stronger. No, he's eating on all of them. Weak and strong alike. You see that, that, that savage, wild imagery of eating the flesh of the people to the point of tearing off their hoofs. Beloved, most of the world's rulers have been bad shepherds. Rare have been the rulers with virtue and principle who cared for and protected the most vulnerable of their people. For every Churchill or Mandela, we can name a couple of Hitlers or Idi Amin's. 
Even more rare are political leaders who are good shepherds to the church, who care for God's people, not just people in general. And so God's people often must survive this cannibalism of ungodly leadership. But know this, number four. When a bad shepherd, when a bad man shepherds, not only is he a judgment on unfaithful people, but when a bad man shepherds, he too will be judged. That's what we see in verse 17. Woe to my worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. Let his arm be wholly withered and his right eye utterly blinded. Every leadership arrangement ends in judgment unless God is your shepherd. Every leadership arrangement ends in pain and brokenness unless God is your shepherd. Even those leaders themselves, they suffer God's withering judgment. Let his right arm be withered, the symbol of his strength, and his his right eye, a symbol of, of life or vision. Let that be blinded. God is going to strike the unjust leader just as God has decided to judge the people sometimes with the raising up of unfaithful leaders, unfaithful rulers. We ought not ever give in to the the misleading and wrong thought that unjust leaders ever get away with their injustice. For there is a higher king and a higher judge and a higher ruler who himself is a shepherd who cares for his people and will call them to account. So you've got three shepherds, God, a good man, and a bad man. The one to be desired is God himself. Maybe this is also part of what is behind Psalm 23, verse 1. David says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He shall not want any provision because God is his shepherd, but I'm led to believe that David shall not want any other shepherd either. The Lord is his shepherd. He shall not want. How do we apply this chapter to our, these couple of chapters to our lives? Well, let me give you five quick applications as we close. You believe me when I say quick? Five quick, five quick applications as we close. <laughs> number one, number one, return to God as your chief shepherd. That's what Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 25. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. I mean, can there be any comparison between God the shepherd and the results he produces and any man and the results that they're able to accomplish? And so we find ourselves wandering sometimes and and a bit lost, perhaps like Israel. We find ourselves having sort of lost focus and direction. The, The scripture calls to us in 1 Peter, return to God, the shepherd and overseer of your soul. Perhaps this morning there's someone who needs to do that returning. Number two, pray for our rulers. Pray for our rulers. That's what we find in 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. Let me me ask you a question. What if our rulers are determined by our prayers? I tend to think they are. What if our rulers cannot lead us any farther than our prayers carry them? We can influence the course of nations and governments on our knees. Let us pray for all those in authority. Pray for President Obama as he leaves office. Pray for President-elect Trump as he comes into office. 
Pray for their cabinets. Pray for the, the civil servants. Let us pray for Mayor Bowser and, and, and the council here in D.C. We are called by God to influence the course of our governments by our prayers. Let's pray for them. Number three, submit to rulers and authorities. It's a little tougher, doesn't it? Titus 3, verse 1, we are to honor the king. We are to submit to governing authorities. We submit to them insofar as they do not call us to sin and do not call us to disobey God or to break covenant with God. But God has raised them up. God has established them. Romans 13, there is no governing authority that God himself has not put into place. And so when we submit to governing authority, we submit to God himself. Submission and authority are part of God's design of the universe. And so as God's people, as an act of worship to God himself, trusting him as our chief shepherd, let us submit to those he has placed in authority over us. Number four, coming inside the church now. Give double honor to those who rule well in the church. 1 Timothy 5, 17. There, Paul writing to Timothy and instructing Timothy in his leadership of the church there in Ephesus. He, he comes now, we're thinking about this shepherd theme as it applies to church leaders. And he says, if you got men who lead well, like the men God has blessed us with in this church, Pastor Matt, Pastor Andrew, Pastor Jahil, Pastor Jeremy, especially men who serve well in the Word, honor such men, respect them. Esteem them for their work. They, they watch for our souls, don't they? They give us the word of life. They, they, they point us toward Christ. Oh, you, you will never have a better leader in your life than one who points you to Jesus. The one who does it from his word. And, and, and it is, I'm led to believe that, that the favor of good leadership is somehow extended and better enjoyed if we honor it. Remember the people there in Zechariah's day who detested him even though he was doing such good work. And remember the consequence. Zechariah said, all right, I'm done. And he removed himself from leadership. God removed him. The removal of a faithful leader from a pastorate, from a church, I'm also convinced is a hard thing that God sometimes deals to his people in order that we might learn to seek him as our shepherd, and honor those who he supplies as under-shepherds. Well, listen, beloved, that's not this point here, this application. That's no chastisement of this church. We feel very much loved and honored by this congregation. We feel encouraged in our work. We, we know your prayers. We, we know your support. Uh, we, we know your counsel. We, we are glad for you. Our hearts are happy shepherding this body of people whom the Lord has assembled. So this, this is no chastisement. This is no rebuke whatsoever. This is encouragement to keep doing what you're doing so that we might have long lives and joyful ministries. <laughs> you honor us, and we honor you for honoring us. We praise God for that, and we pray the Lord would extend that. Number five, imitate the faith of faithful leaders. That's what's written in Hebrews 13, 7, paraphrasing there. That's what Paul says to Corinthians, follow me as I follow Christ. So how do you respond to good leadership when God gives it to you? Well, you, you follow it. You, you shape your life around it. You, you imitate it, right? Now, you don't become clones. We're not talking about a cult of personality. You know, we don't want everybody talking and dressing like Pastor T. That's boring, right? 
We, we need some Peter Nobles and we need some Matt Schmuckers and we, you know, we, we need some different people expressing whom God has made them to be, but, but together commonly pursuing Christ and being molded into Christ, right? Imitate your leaders. Follow their way of life. Remember their example among you. Watch Andrew and Jahil and Matt as they love their families. They care for their wives. They speak the word of truth to their children as they endeavor to, to shepherd those who are under their care well in their homes. You know, look, 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 to, look to Jeremy and look to Jahil. You ever notice how they kind of drip the Bible? You know, you talk to Jeremy, he's got that kind of quiet way, and, and every once in a while you're talking with him and he, he hits you with something. He's like, oh, that was the Bible. I thought we was just talking, man. That was, that, was, that was the Bible right there. And Jahil, who's different, right? Jahil's like, what's up? How's the blessed man? You know, how's, how's the blessed man? And he, he hugged you up and he said, man, I just want to encourage you. I just want to exhort you. And then he recites, he recites like Psalm 119, right? You know. <laughs> so wonderful qualities. Imitate that. Learn from that. Grow in that. Have you ever watched Matt? And his, his precision in the way he speaks and his carefulness with small things, it's because he prizes stewardship. That, that's a huge value in this brother's life. You want to learn how to be a better steward? I, I can't think of anybody to sort of point you to who would be better to watch than Matt. To observe him in the small things and see how the Lord has made him faithful in bigger things and a desire that pattern in our own lives. I could, I could go on and on, and not just with the elders, but, but also with many others here who serve and whose lives are commendable. Let us, let us observe faithful leaders and follow them. Then we may be hopeful that God would give us a continuous supply of godly leaders in both government and church. Then we would know his blessing as our great shepherd. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, if we've learned anything from this text, perhaps we have learned two things. To ask you, oh, Lord, not to leave us to foolish and unfaithful leaders, but to supply us faithful leaders in government and in the church and in the home. And we pray, oh, Lord, that you would take men and women who perhaps were foolish in some way or at some point, and make them wise, make them righteous. We know that our leader's current situation doesn't have to be their final situation. And so we pray that you would work in the lives of, of all of our leaders. We, we ask you for that, O oh Lord. Do not remove from us the blessing of good leadership. And Father, do not, number two, allow us to look to other leaders, household gods, instead of looking to you our true shepherd, our great God and King who cares for us and loves us and has provided Christ your Son to save us. Help us to look to Christ and to look to you and to follow you, O Lord, with all the strength you provide. This we pray, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.